One of the easiest things to say uh, that falls into the category of easy to say, almost impossible to do, is when people give the instruction, just pay attention to the breath, and if a thought comes along, just drop it and bring your awareness back to your breath. That is probably the easiest sentence to say and the most difficult instruction to follow, and in many ways, because the instruction is totally wrong. And because also, by the time all of us reach adult life, trying to stop thinking is about as easy as trying to stop swallowing or blinking or doing anything else that has become ingrained through years of repetition. Thinking is not just one of the most important human faculties that we have. It's how we make sense of our lives. It's how we communicate and coordinate with each other. And in fact, if we don't know how to think and we can't turn our experience into words and into ideas, then serious psychological situations result. For example, when people have traumas in life, an enormous amount of the clinical work that is done is simply allowing people to access the memories that have been blocked so that they can turn the experience into a narrative so that they can bring the experience, they can incorporate the experience into their lives and no longer keep it compartmentalized. So thinking plays a absolutely vital, significant role of the human experience. And pretending, as I give you instructions, that it won't be the dominant struggle that most of us will have this week is how do we relate to the thoughts that pop up in the mind, not just the memories, not just the random images, but really the internal chatter, trying to figure out, label, narrate what we're experiencing. It starts out very young in life, and at first, as I was saying yesterday, the inner chatter we hear is an internalization of the language that caregivers speak to us with, and is uh, essentially, because of that, known as a titrating uh, quality. It makes us feel like we're not alone in the world when we can think. When we face new experiences in life, we tend to think and try to make sense of it more, the left hemisphere pipes up, because that's what makes us feel less alone as we walk into new situations. We literally hear our thoughts as if it's another person at times guiding us, telling us what to do, making us feel safe. It's a titrating quality. But because of that factor that it tends to arise especially when confronting new experiences or feelings or difficult emotions, thinking has another quality to it as well. It's what's known as a defense mechanism. 
a lot of the defense mechanisms such as intellectualization, rationalization, and so forth boil down to when we're very young, we feel our emotions and our feelings very, very strong. We're far more embodied. We spend the first few of our lives largely much more physically aware because we're much more right hemispheric up until the five, first five years of life. So there comes this magical moment in each of our lives where when we start to feel sad or lonely or angry or frustrated with our parents or confused, instead of feeling the feelings, we rally around that inner thought that comes up and tells us something that makes us not have to feel the feelings, but instead we seek refuge, safety, security with the languaging that goes on in the mind. At that point, our relationship with thinking begins to change. It no longer becomes something that is simply interpreting experience. It becomes something that is making experience go away. It is becoming a distracting, deflecting, numbing tool that is essentially trying to mute feelings, mute awareness of our sensory internal experience. It's trying to make the emotions go away. Much of the healing that work that I do in, in spiritual counseling boils back to again and again and again investigating what's going on beneath the thinking. In the Buddha's uh, wonderful psychology boils down to a very famous teaching called the Paticca Samapada. I'm not going to go and explain all of it because it's a wonderful but very, very subtle teaching that requires at least an entire week to explain. But I will say that one of the key insights of this explanation of how human suffering occurs in life is that we have feelings, what he calls Vedana, that arise before any of our thoughts in any given experience. And that when these feelings are strong, dukkha vedana, sukha vedana, we, instead of feeling these feelings, these somatic, psychobiological strong sensations in the body, the tight stomach, the tight throat, the tight chest, what we tend to do is we tend to jump up into what he refers to as upadana, clinging to thoughts. So rather than thoughts coming first and then feelings follow, what the Buddha realized some 2,500 years ago is that our thoughts very often are distractions, things that arise in a rather late-forming part of the brain to try to figure out what's going on, why am I feeling this way, and then trying to pull our attention from the experience so that we can turn everything into a story or an idea in the hopes that narrating will make it all go away. Now, while that works sometimes in life, when it becomes a compulsion every time we feel, every time we feel a sensation, a strong emotion, to abandon the somatic 
felt experience in search of something to make us feel safer in the short term rather than feeling the feelings. Then it turns into a compulsion that causes, I would argue, the bulk of our suffering in life. There was a wonderful study by a Harvard group of psychologists led by Matthew Killingsworth and uh, Dan Gilbert. They took a million samples from 5,000 people from 83 different countries. And they found that our minds are wandering away from what we're doing about half of the time. Literally 47.8%, so that's roughly half. I'm cheating a little bit. I'm I'm pushing it up to 50%. The fascinating thing about the study is in abandoning awareness of what we're doing and focusing our attention on thinking is that those are the times in life when we turn out to be the least happy. Interestingly enough, they, they found that 42% of the time people tried to think of happy things. Only 28% of the time did we go to catastrophizing worst-case scenarios. And yet, it turns out it doesn't matter whether you're thinking pleasant or unpleasant thoughts. We are the least happy, they found, when we're not paying attention to what we're doing. It doesn't matter what it is we're doing. If we're paying attention to it, we will be happier than if we let thought completely pull us away. This is what's called default mode operation of the brain. It's called default mode because it tends to be, given that it's 50% of our life, waking lives, we tend to do it a lot. We tend to default to it. And throughout the course of the next five days, when you become familiar or when, with a routine or when you become slightly bored or lonely or sad, or when the breath isn't that interesting, or when what, another tool that we've given you feels difficult, you will probably wander away from present time awareness, which means being cognizant of the sensations that are actually happening in the body, the feelings that are rising in the front of the body where the vagal vagus nerve com communicates our emotions to us. You'll lose awareness of the moods in the mind and you will almost certainly, like I do constantly, abandon the present time and wind up back into default mode operation. Your thoughts will pull you entirely away from the present time experience. So, this is not to say that all thinking, again, is uh, wrong or bad. The kind of thinking we're going to try to m work on minimizing, knowing that we will fail again and again and again and have to be kind and patient and gentle with ourselves, is the kind of thinking which, again, creates an entire virtual reality that completely obstructs awareness of what's actually occurring in the present moment and numbs awareness of the body. That's default mode. The Buddha didn't call it default mode operation, by the way. He didn't like that kind of languaging. I don't know why I love clinical terms, but he actually had another term called papancha. 
It's an equally wonderful word. And I love sometimes throwing in a little bit of the old poly, so you'll have to bear with me. Papancha is the kind of default mode thinking that the Buddha noted causes by far and away the most obsessive, intrusive ideation where we can't stop, where the thoughts just spiral out and where we sink into thinking like a a little inner virtual movie where we no longer have any awareness of how we feel or any awareness of grounding in the present experience. I'm going to read you quote from the Buddha. This is how one thinks inappropriately. What was I like in the past? What will happen to me in the future? What will, um, or perhaps one is perplexed about oneself. What is my true nature? How am I different from others? This self of mine, is it lasting Is it not subject to change? How do I compare with other people? Any of us think these kind of thoughts? (laughs) If you want to create suffering in life, there's a very easy recipe. You take, you abandon what you're doing, you think about yourself, and then you start speculating. Those are the miracle growth of uh, suffering. It's not very difficult to do. In fact, most of us, by the time we're adults, I know I am quite adept at mixing together those ingredients and creating entirely different souffles of stress. Self-oriented, speculative thinking is some of the clues that we're not thinking in a way that will create constructive understanding or meaning that's useful in our lives. A couple of other keys to understand when the thinking is not useful and when we have to work on beginning to change our relationship with a thought or, as we'll see, changing the thought. The big clues are, one, it's about me. Two, I'm guessing something about myself that I can't know for certain, like what other people think about me or how I compare with other people or what's going to happen to me in the future or why did people say these things to me in the past. If I'm guessing and if it's about myself, I'm probably already way down the path to papancha. If it in any way isolates me, i.e. makes me feel unique or different from other people, then I'm definitely in the wrong direction. There is no meaningful human experience that is unique because there's only actually about five or six universal emotions and a couple of other cultural emotions that we have. We're all working from the exact same color palette. The details might be different, but each of us know loneliness, sadness, stress, the anxiety that our emotions are showing and other people might not like us for them. The human experience is vastly similar, not different. So the moment we are relating to anything that happens on this retreat with a story that I am somehow different, that other people won't understand it, that this is unusual, that my struggle is more challenging than my uh, jumpy awareness, is jumpier than other people's awareness, I've already gone to the wrong conclusion. 
if you want to go immediately towards the right kind of way to interpret your experience, assume it's not personal, and assume it will pass. Those are two of the fundamental great insights of the Buddha. Nothing is personal, and it all is going to pass. And if we cling too much to any interpretation or belief, it'll bring us suffering. So those are a safer beginning way to think. And again, I'm not trying to get you in any of these practices to stop thinking. I'm, getting, I'm trying to get us to change when the thinking comes up to a kind of ideation that won't cause us needless stress, suffering, will not pull us away from developing insight or peace of mind, whatever it is we're trying to develop. There is task positive thought. Task positive is when we're focusing on what we're doing. And it turns out in life, when we're in task positive, that's what Shaheli Mahi called flow. It's the most peaceful time in life. What is flow? Flow is when we're gardening and we're paying attention to gardening. And we're not trying to get anywhere. We're not trying to finish gardening. Anybody who's ever gardened with the idea of, I can't wait till I get to the end of this gardening. Well, I, will, I cut the final stem and I water the final, final flower. That will be so great when I reach the end of this. That's obviously stupid. That's not the point. The point is to enjoy the activity, not to get to any destination at all. So task positive thought is not about trying to get anywhere. It's not comparing us with anyone else. It's not making any experience lasting or permanent and certainly not making us feel unique. If anything, it's removing the obsession with how am I doing, how this is somehow about me. And it's instead, as the Buddha, when he uses, when he defines what useful thinking is, which is called vitaka vikara or dhamma vikaya. He says, these thoughts are fit for your attention and what you should attend to. What am I doing right now that's stressful and agitating and how can I stop doing that? It's actually pretty simple. There's no need to turn it into a big story about oneself. It's simply the, the action. Where am I focusing my mind? How am I attending to this? There's no selfing in there. There's no comparing oneself to anyone else. There's no wondering if this will last forever. There's no turning it into an identity belief. It's simply right now. How can I focus? How can I shift my effort in such a way as to make this experience even more peaceful and more enjoyable? At no point in the retreat will there ever be room for self-judgment, self-criticism, impatience. So if you ever start to feel those things which are roughly, in many of us, the managers that help us survive in the world, but when they appear here, you thank them, you welcome them, and you ask them to take a seat, and you inform them that you're in charge. And in our retreat, we will be entirely in our practice trying to develop not so much 
at first lasting peace or lasting wisdom, but simply to cultivate the qualities that you love in other people and that you actually love most in yourself, which is kindness, patience, understanding, gentleness, compassion. There's no room, really, in terms of growth and uh, developing any peace in life for any other practices. So the Buddha had a wonderful sutta that helps us know what to do when obsessive thoughts pop up. How are we going to bring awareness back to what we're doing? Obsessive thoughts, again, are generally thoughts about what's going to happen to me in the future or what happened to me in the past, why it happened to me, and how I compare to other people. So when those thoughts come up, the thoughts that make it difficult for us to be aware of the body, to feel the breath, to hear the sounds around us, to connect and ground ourselves with the experience, the Buddha laid out in this sutta, it's called the Vitaka Santana. It's the uh, <clears throat> sutta in English that's called Removing Obsessive Thoughts. And I wish that they had given me this teaching when I was in fourth grade. Buddha says, when unskillful, repetitive thoughts arise, in order to change the thought, one should reflect instead on a different thought or reflection. This is like when a carpenter uses a peg to knock out another peg that is stuck. He uses analogies a lot. So essentially, you're, you're not just trying to say, go away thinking, stop thinking, stop thinking about myself. That won't work. But what we do do is we say, okay, I hear you, thank you, I see you, greet it, welcome it, and then we cultivate a thought that we know will not be obsessive and repetitive. And this will help us return fully to the breath or whatever we're focusing on. So the Buddha lists ten, my God, ten suitable things that we can think and reflect about that will not cause suffering. Uh, two, two of them are anapanasati, kaigatasati, which is simply think about your breathing and think about the way your body feels. <laughs> reflect on it. Okay. Three of them we talked about last night, Buddha Nusati, Dhamma Nusati, and Sangha Nusati, reflecting on the life and the... the uh, reflecting on what the idea of the Buddha and all those wise teachers, what they evident for us, what, they, what, they, uh, what their lives uh, showed us, reflecting on the Dharma, reflecting on the, the lessons or the wisdom or the Sangha, reflecting that there's other people around us. That we talked about that. I'm going to talk about some of the other tools that the Buddha talked about reflecting on. A few of them form under the quality of changing thinking from about me, how do I compare to others, what's going to happen to me, to gratitude, 
thoughts. It's very unusual in life to have this opportunity for us to gather and in a safe place where nobody's judging or harming or being in any way um, wounding to each other, to have this space where for five days we can take time to reconnect with ourselves. And that's worth constantly returning to, that thought of just becoming aware of where we are, what we're doing, and how wonderful it is to be here. Sila Nusati is reflecting on all the things we did to allow us to reach this point in our life. None of us wound up here by mistake. We all had to overcome enormous amounts of difficulty in our lives to get to a place where we would even be willing to try a retreat or a second retreat. Nobody comes rolling in to Buddhist practice or spiritual practice on a winning streak. It just doesn't happen. Our culture doesn't reward it. Nobody says, doing well in life, go on a spiritual retreat. You just don't see that commercial anywhere on TV. You see, when it's time to relax, have a beer, buy a thing, go on vacation, whatever. <laughs> Grab a beach chair and a Corona. <laughs> you, won't, you won't ever see the commercial for you've been skillful, You've been kind. You've been turning your awareness to the emotional wounds that have developed in life. You've been seeing your therapist. <laughs> you've, been <laughs> you've been going to the bookstore and actually buying a book on meditation or Tara Brock. Finally, you found Tara. And you listened to her on the internet and her soothing voice made you feel safe for a few moments. And you said, my God, I could be doing more of this. Gratitude for those actions you've taken. Don't let them go unreflected on. Santi Nusati is reflecting on all the angelic people in your life that help steer you in a direction where acceptance and kindness with yourself was even possible. Many of us, I didn't have that in childhood. I had to have a lot of people over the course of my life be willing to give me messages of unending, unconditional acceptance to get here and reflecting on those people and how they would want us to not isolate ourselves with our thinking and turn this retreat into there's something wrong about me. Deva Nusati, or actually Santi Nusati is reflecting on peaceful experiences that allowed us, and Santi, uh, Deva Nusati is the reflecting on angelic beings who helped us get here. So reflecting on the peaceful experiences in life in the past that allowed us to even believe it was possible to find moments of quietude. There's nothing wrong with reflecting on those moments in our lives where we finally found some peace, some ability to let go. And when all those don't work, we can rely on the old... Maranasati. That's my favorite. That's the hardcore practice. Death metal and meditation. That's when 
we find ourselves really wrapped up in thinking about why I fucked up and why am I unlovable and why are the relationships not working out? We can't be here, present, no matter how much we try. And so then we, we bring to mind those recollections, I am of the nature to grow old. I am the nature to become sick. I will die. And all that is dear to me, I will eventually lose. And so all that I could possibly really own are simply the results of my actions. The point of Marana Sati is to get us to turn towards this moment with a renewed sense of I need, because I could die at any moment, I, this could be the last time I have this opportunity right now. I'm going to focus my efforts. So those are some of the thoughts that we can safely go to that are skillful or reflections when we find ourselves caught up, hooked, as uh, Pima Chodron says. Another way is we can analyze the thoughts, which is called Dhamma Vikaya, and that's simply when a strong thought comes up and you catch it, uh, and it's really difficult to let go. You're really thinking, ah, I'm here. I know this was a good idea, but my mind will just never, ever, ever quiet down. There's something about my brain. Look at all these people around me. They're, they just don't know. Their brains work fine. They just don't know. They just don't know what it's like to think as much as I do. So Dhamma Wikaya is analyzing the thoughts from a different perspective developing a different relationship with our thinking. And this is very useful. I spent a lot of my retreats when I would be hooked just using these tools. One technique was taught to me by, by a teacher that I studied with for 10 years, Ajahn Jeff, and boy, is that guy strict. Uh, but he used to have this saying, when you have a thought that really swallows you up whole, <laughs> Imagine there was a microphone in your head and that everybody else could hear exactly what you were thinking in that moment. Would you feel embarrassed or would you feel proud of your thought? That literally apparently worked for some people. Never worked for me. It just made me kind of embarrassed and self-conscious and made me even feel less able to detach. But that's one technique that some people use. I use a different technique, which is, would I ever say this thought to another human being? Would I ever knock on somebody else's shoulder on this retreat and say, you know, I understand why you came here. And, you know, it was a good idea, but you're really not just cut out for this. Your brain, you're just far more complex than everybody else. Your brain just is not going to ever shut up. You might as well just call it a day. Just give up. So if you wouldn't say the thought to someone else, thank it. And know that at some point in our life, we really relied on these kinds of thoughts to help us. But now, they're just there making us miserable, making us stressed out, making us feel unique and isolated and alone in the world. And that it's our job right now to change 
it's just something different, which is I'm only going to think something that I would be proud to say to someone else that I cared about. Or that if somebody else said this thought to me other than myself, I wouldn't run from them in horror. Finally, the most important tool is learning to relax what's underneath, pay attention to, connect with, and then learning to relax with what's going on in the body that has activated the thought in the first place. If we bring our minds back to the beginning of the talk, I noted that the bulk of obsessive compulsive thinking is an attempt to distract us from strong feelings and emotions. So what more skillful tool for us than to welcome. Again, never try to get rid of a thought. Welcome it. If it reminds you of someone early on in life, say, hi, Mom. Hi, Dad. Hi, Sis. Welcome it. Don't try to chase it away. Don't try to lock it out. But on the other hand, don't allow the thinking that isolates, that turns a present fleeting experience into something that it tells you will last forever. Don't let it dominate, pull you away. Welcome it, allow it to be there. And then find whatever is going on beneath that thought in your body. If it's a strong thought, there will always be contraction. And almost invariably, the contraction will be in the front of the body because that's where the vagal vagus nerve is, and that's the part of the, that's a nerve system that actually connects us to the emotional mind, and generally thinking is a distraction from right hemispheric impulses. You don't need to know that, I'm just telling you, if you want to look for what's tight beneath your thinking, it's probably going to be in a few areas. It's going to be in your jaw, your shoulders will become locked, your throat will have a lump in it, your chest will become hollow or tight, or your abdomen will become really tight. It'll be somewhere in there, because those are the kinesthetics of emotion. And we have trained ourselves by the time we're adults to abandon our emotions and seek refuge in our thinking. So our job is to again and again and again go back to the body, go back to the body, go back to the body and find where the strong feeling is that we're trying not to feel. When we're children, emotions feel so powerful. They're like oceans, and they feel like they're going to swarm us and take us over and consume us, and we don't believe that we can survive it. So we bring that relationship, that fear of our emotions into our adult life. And all anxiety boils down to a fear of simply being with our emotions. Anxiety is the fear that some emotion, sadness, loneliness, anger, shame, guilt, some very natural emotion we believe will consume us, take us over, and make us unlovable, and will make us no longer sane. That's what anxiety is, the fear of our emotions being felt and seen. So the role of reducing anxiety and the, the role of reducing the reliance on distracting thoughts that are there as defense mechanisms always boils down to returning to the body, greeting the body, 
feeling what's present, and then slowly using the breath as a way to relax the body, what's called fabrication. I don't use that word, but that's what some Buddhists call it, the body fabrication. So, to summarize what we've learned is that uh, trying to get rid of thinking will not work. In fact, Dan Wegner, a great psychologist, wrote a book called White Bears where he showed clinically that it is impossible to get rid of thinking. But in the same book, he showed that while, by the way, the, the, the study was interesting. He said to people, uh, he gave people, uh, broke people down into two groups. In one group, he said, you can think about white bears as often as you want. In the second group, he said, don't think about polar bears. And so he had them free associate, and every time they thought about polar bears, they had to hit this button that was in front of them. And of course, he found out that the people he gave permission to think about polar bears thought about polar bears half as often as the people he said not to think about polar bears. So the first conclusion is, if you have a strong thought, trying to get rid of it will not work. But then he did a second test where he said, you can, if you want, think about red Volkswagens. And then he had them free associate again, and almost nobody then thought about polar bears. So the key is not trying to push, lock out, get rid of, you know, suppress thoughts. The key is to switch them. And that's why I've given you all those tools. So some other notes before we do a quick meditation where I'll show some of this in action is always be rewarding. Every time you find yourself swallowed up by a thought and you wake up, reward yourself. Never criticize. Never think, oh my God, I wound up, I lost the breath again, I lost hearing. If the, it becomes really, really difficult to stay with the first task for this retreat, which will be breathing, if it's really difficult to stay with it, make the task a little bit more challenging. Don't just observe the breath and the chest. Try to find it as well in the belly, the chest. Try to spread it as much as possible. When you wake up from a thought, always feel really good. Reward yourself. Take a big, nice, comfortable breath. Feel, my God, that's great. I'm learning to this, I'm developing this ability to wake up. That's a little example of enlightenment in and of itself every time you wake up from a thought. So celebrate it like you've literally just had a small moment of enlightenment. Only feel good every time you wake up from a thought that has pulled you entirely away from the present. And when you bring the mind back, Feel really patient, develop patience, address the experience with, like you would a child, encouraging it. Even if the child has just fallen from its bike, be very so kind and encouraging. This is great. We're doing this together. This is so lovely. We're cultivating a new way of talking to ourselves when we do this. 
No more criticism, judgment, separating, isolating, making us unique. Nothing but appreciation. If you do nothing else but cultivate these basic attitudes or dispositions of kindness, appreciation, patience, then you will already begin to reap such benefits. It doesn't matter if it's difficult for you to count three breaths in succession, just if you practice this kindness every time you wake up. So I'm going to lead us now through a shortened, about a 15 to 20 minute, well, I'm going to go a little bit over, but uh, this is going to be based on a famous, famous meditation by famous Thai forest Buddhist named Ajahn Lee. Ajahn Lee was considered to be a master of uh, concentration practices. Uh, and so this is known as his method two of meditation. And we're going to be blending in a little bit of also a hero of mine, Ajahn Buddha Dasa, a great Buddhist monk who had uh, his own teachings on Anapanasati. So I've developed for you a very simple... Uh, basic uh, ver variation of their approaches to breath meditation. So closing the eyes and with each meditation I like to begin as Lee instructed with taking three full in-breaths and long out-breaths and when I do this I also like to call attention to the body so here's what I do take a full in-breath and while you do it lift your shoulders up like you're trying to touch your ears hold the in-breath and then when you breathe out relax the shoulders and pull them back Good. Just let them fall heavily. Release any tendency to use mudras or any strange hand positions. Just let your hands fall as they would in the most relaxed situation. Now take another deep in-breath and pull in the belly as tight as you can. Really, really tight. Hold the belly in. And then as you breathe out, soften the belly. Really soft abdomen. Really pliant. And then with a third breath, squinch the muscles in the face. Tight, lock the eyes, squinch. Ugly face you wish nobody else would ever see. Squinch, squinch, squinch. And then as you breathe out, soften, relax the jaw, relax the micro muscles around the eyes. We're essentially relaxing the core nerve highway that runs down the front of the body, telling the midbrain that we're safe. Take a moment to orient yourself, reminding yourself that you're in a safe space, feeling the earth supporting you, feeling uh, all the space around you that no one's impinging, remembering that the ceilings are so vaulted and high here, so there's nothing pushing us down. And take as much space as your body needs. Really feel as big as you can in your body. Allow it to take up as much space as it possibly can. 
And try not to sit like a meditator or the Buddha. Try to sit like yourself in a comfortable, upright position. Don't use any external cue to how to sit. Just feel into your body. Feel what feels like uprightness, but also comfort and balance the two. If you need to put any effort into the posture, just keep your head from floating in front of your chest. And if you want to do that, the simplest way is not really put, putting a great deal of thought about it. Just gently tilt your head slightly up like you're looking at a very tall building, and that tends to prevent the head from slouching. And when the head's in line with the shoulders, then there's this wonderful ability to connect with the body below. But once you have that nice alignment, relax into it. Let go of any tendency to try to... Your balance should actually be keeping you upright, not effort. Now, in Lee's instructions, he suggests that we find the breaths in either one of five places, the tip of the nose, or the middle of the head. Some people literally find themselves able to follow the breath there. The throat, the chest, or the movement of the abdomen. So the throat, I'm sorry, the nose is generally felt on the actual sensation of breath entering and leaving the body. The rest is more based on the sensations associated with bringing air in, and then releasing. So we're going to start a very basic counting practice. It's going to go very simple. When you breathe in, think one, and let one take up as much of a duration of the in-breath as it feels comfortable. Pause, and then as you breathe out, think two. On the next in-breath, think three. And as you breathe out, think four. Continuing with a simple practice, five on the next in-breath, six on the next out. And when we get to seven in Lee's practice, we start counting back down. So we start thinking six on the out-breath following when we reach seven, and then five on the next in, and then four on the next out. So we're counting from one to seven and then back down. If it is very difficult, and that's okay, you can lower your count just counting up to five. Odd numbers are always on the, e, the in-breath, and even numbers are always on the out-breath. And then before I let us go fully into silence, just a couple of final notes. Observe if your breath is over time making you have a settled mind, or if the mind remains jumpy, there's some techniques we can do, or if the mind starts to become 
dull and sleepy. So if you really find over time that your mind is jumping about, that there's a whirlwind of activity, that it's difficult to settle, no worries. Just note that. Know that other people are experiencing that too. Don't make it unique. And then simply extend the length of each out-breath so that it's twice as long as the in-breath. So really long out-breaths tend to settle a jumpy, agitated mind. There's actually a reason it does, but I won't tell you it. You'll just have to trust me here. On the other hand, if you find yourself sleepy, drifting, suddenly you note your head bobbing, then we're going to do another technique, which is take a full deep in-breath and hold it as long as you can before it feels like you can't hold it any longer and then breathe out. Do that a couple of times and that actually will begin to wake up the mind. But try not to oversteer your practice. Try to just be with the breath as it is, counting it, being an observer, and only intercede with the length of the in-breath or out-breath if you really feel you'd like to change the experience. Remember, if a strong thought comes up, welcome it, greet it, don't push it away, and just if it feels too strong a thought to let go of and bring your awareness back to the breath, that's okay. Just bring in one of the reflections we talked about, gratitude, feeling good about your practice, reflections on your skillfulness, reflections on people who've been kind. And then once the obsessive thought is diminished, then fully bring awareness back to the breath and each time reward yourself with a nice, deep, full, relaxing breath.
So finally, just as there's a way to move into a retreat and move into a meditation, there's a way also to leave a meditation in a way that's skillful. I like to, at the end of each set, take a moment to reflect on the virtue of my practice, always ending having the final emotional experience be positive, which makes it always easier to drop back in. So I'd like to offer the following reflections for a moment, and you can develop your own. When we sit, we're not harming any other being. We're not exploiting anyone. We're not consuming any of the world's resources. We're not in any conflict. When you practice, no matter how easy or difficult it is, you're neurally rewiring your brain to greater impulse control, greater self-awareness. Even memory improves. No matter how difficult the meditation is, it doesn't matter, the research shows. So not only are you not part of the problem, but you are also beginning to literally take care of your own brain, your own mind. Your practice is blameless. It harms no other being, and it helps you achieve peace in your life. And finally, there's a way to even open one's eyes and to reintegrate. The goal is to sustain a mindful awareness, and by which I mean, if we simply open our eyes at the end of a meditation and look around, sight is an extremely dominant sense. And it will push awareness of the body, the breath, feelings, moods. It will push all of those internal that internal world of experience it will push into the periphery of awareness. It will push it into the margins, and that's not what we want. On retreat, we want to maintain, at very least when we're walking around, a kind of balanced awareness where we're 50% in our body, 50% aware of our body, and 50% aware of what's around us. In most of our lives, as we walk around busily, we're in 90% or maybe 80% external awareness, and then the other 20% is maybe awareness of our thoughts, the schedules, the busyness. So when you first open your eyes, look at the ground in front and take in the light and just see light see color and integrate light and color into embodied awareness so that neither dominates. You're both aware of the color, but you're also aware of whether you're breathing in or breathing out in this moment. And when you get to that place where you can know whether you're breathing in, breathing out, how your body feels, and also see what's in front of you, then 
slowly begin to raise your eyes and look around and keep the breath and mind still. Keep the body still in mind. That's a mindful, balanced awareness. 50% aware of the inner, 50% aware of the outer landscape. 